0: This Choir Cast podcast episode is brought to you by Maria Francesca French, author of the newly released book, Safer Than the Known Way, A Post-Christian Journey. It's an exploration of the promise of faith from a post-Christian perspective. What does it mean to speak beyond binaries of theism and atheism, conservative and liberal fact and fiction? Why might a new type of theological imagination, one that defies categories in comparison, with the challenge actual deconstruction offers, be all that is next? Here you will find a compelling read of story and personal journey with strong scholarship and deep theology, significant and transformational thought that has lived in the ivory tower for too long but made accessible and resonant. Read along as the tables are turned, head towards a horizon with no line and follow a compass that doesn't point north. Prepare to be beckoned by ghosts and travel a path unknown because to go out into the elegant chaos of all that might be waiting for us after Christianity while still engaging in meaningful faith is safer than all that might be considered certain. If you have moved past traditional notions of God beyond mechanisms of belief and find yourself relentlessly curious about what might be necessary next. This book is for you. This and more in my new book, Safer Than the Known Way, a post-Christian journey, out now.
1: Hey, heathens, you're listening to the Deadly Faith Podcast, where religion and crime collide. I'm Lacey. And I'm Lola. And this shit is racist.
2: The mind that was in Jesus, that mind... Is in me? Without me, life has no meaning. Why would God tell you what I'm thinking and tell you what I've said to my wife or my husband when you're not around? It's because I'm the pastor of the church and I need to know. This is the only place where you can see truth.
3: And with us today, a special guest for the first time ever. He's a black man. (laughs) (laughs) His name is Kyle. And he's on the Messy Spirituality Podcast with moi. So please welcome
1: to the show... Kyle! Hey, hey, hey! Kyle! <laughs> Hello, Kyle. We are so excited to have you here. Thank you. To talk about a case today and just have this conversation and progress in understanding and learning the experiences of people of color and what that involves within church and out of church and within crime. And we did, couldn't think of anyone better than you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So we're really excited to have you here today. and have this conversation. You. you are our first guest. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Well, I, I
2: like being first. I, I love being first. I'm the firstborn, so there's there something to that whole first thing, you know, you understand. There um, you go. Let, let me say this before we get into it, if I may. Uh, yeah. One, I am definitely Black, you know. It's just, you know I'm probably as I got black one as thing come. right. Good. Okay. To, to our <laughs> listeners, uh, I may sound white. I've been told that Many times in my life. I don't know what that means, but they say you sound white. But I'm, I assure you, I am black. He and is, if he is anyone's black. listening and they want some verification, <laughs> I can throw in a few words that'll validate my blackness <laughs> if necessary, okay? We
1: will also post a picture on our Instagram so we can all you know you can all be rest assured Kyle is black. <laughs>
3: oh we're going to link all of his social media too because you all have to follow him on social media because I yeah, Me love too. his posts. He's such a positive person, so <laughs> so yeah. thank good. You. Thank Shameless you. plug. So and good. to you
2: both, I say thank you for lending a voice to these topics, this topic particularly because you know the, the there's something that's undeniable about the topic. Absolutely. And what's undeniable, one of the things that's, well, there's many things that's undeniable, but one of the things that's undeniable is if the the problem's going to get fixed, it's not something we can do.
1: Mm -hmm. We
2: can't fix the problem because we didn't start the problem. Exactly. We didn't initiate the issue. Yeah. And um, I know that makes some white people feel very uncomfortable mm-hmm. because they'll say, well, I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't lynched anyone. I haven't, I haven't uh, burnt anyone. I haven't been in the KKK. And they'll say things like that. And, and we've been nice to black people. hmm yeah, I hear you. However, we need your voice. Exactly. So when things happen that you know are wrong, you know they're wrong. You, you know they're wrong. Yeah. If, You know, we need your voice because it's your voice that's going to make the difference because your voice added to another voice, added to another voice in your community, from your community, that's what's going to make the difference. It's the lack of voices Uh that is the issue. Not your hearts. I'm sure your hearts are in the right places, but we need your voice. So thank you both for your voices.
1: Thank you. You're welcome. I think a, a big layer of that as well is it, specifically speaking from my experience was not understanding systemic racism and how that is played out within our country and within our day-to-day life and how, yes, I would say, oh, I'm not racist. But then as I set and unlearned and, and really peeled back the layers, I understood that, yes, I was and I still am because that's how I was taught on certain things. And so things will pop in my head and I'm like, whoa, that's racist. And I have to sit and take that in and peel back those layers. And I think it's really uncomfortable for some people to sit with that and admit, I have privilege. That doesn't mean I have a perfect life, but I do have white privilege. Right. And I, you know, I am racist and that can be really hard for people. When I first started my you know, journey in unlearning and, and learning racism and, and how that's played out in America and within the lives of people I love, I wrote at the very beginning of it, I wrote a blog entry called Dear Black Lives Matter. And the whole letter was just an open apology for not noticing and recognizing my inherited and, and inerrant white privilege that I have just for being born white here in America. And I went on and I said a bunch of other stuff, but I had somebody actually actually get mad at me for writing that post. We got into a very big argument and they took it as I was apologizing for being white, for being born white. And I was like, that is not what I said. I can't control being born white. They're not asking us to apologize for being white. They're asking us to just recognize that by us being white, we have a privilege that they don't. Right. That does not mean that our life does not have trouble. It just means that the color of our skin does not play into those troubles and and isn't a factor in it. Yeah.
2: Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. Well said.
3: Thank you. I have to say a side note. Looking at you guys, I am the whitest person here. I look like Forks, (laughs) Washington, like Twilight. (laughs) Both of you have such like Nice, like rosy <laughs> kind of color. And then I look like the dead of winter with my background too. It,
1: it, has, to, it has to be the, the bulbs or your lighting. You have very cool lighting and I and Kyle have very warm lighting. And so yeah. I look like I have a soft, soft tan. And
3: Lola,
1: mm-hmm. Lola looks like she's Casper's girlfriend. <laughs> I
3: am a sheet of paper college rule, if you will. If you
1: will.
3: (laughs) It's glaringly obvious that I carry privilege, unfortunately. So
1: I love it. So we have some questions for Kyle, but we're going to save those for the end. Today, we are going to be covering the case of the assassination of Medgar Evers, and I'm going to be presenting today. But I want to ask Kyle really quick, Kyle, do you know this case? And if so, how much do you know about it?
2: I do, I do know about it. There's been documentaries and uh, I think even a movie. Yes. On, on, on some level about it. And, um, you know, I, I, it was a little bit before my era, my right. birth. So I, I wasn't in that time frame. It my mom's generation. But I definitely heard about it. And I uh, heard about it several times throughout my life. And I I did watch a few of the documentaries about it, and and um, what I know about it from a feeling perspective is it's incredibly sad. Yes, you know, a human being lost his life just because he wanted people to enjoy the right and the privilege of being able to do something so simple as voting.
1: Yes, yes, and that is something I want to talk about: is just how you know about this case i did not know about this case until i was reading a book about racism and mm-hmm. it got brought up in the book and then it sent me on a rabbit hole to learn more about it had no idea there were documentaries about it had no idea there was a movie made about this i i knew none of it and i was like why was this and then i when i you know was doing my research i learned how much of a like pillar of the you know um desegregation activism group like how much of a pillar he was yeah why was this story not told more in our schools and i did grow up in the south so that kind of explains the why in that but yeah so before we jump in trigger warnings um racism Murder, it's not very graphic, but there is murder. There are some mentions of lynchings, rape, physical assault, and arson. Um, but there's just a few little mentions. We don't go into major details. So, are you guys ready? I think yes. I'm ready. I'm
3: nervous. I don't, I don't know anything about this story at all. And I feel bad for it since apparently again, this person was such an important,
1: pivotal yeah. person. And that is the problem with our education system.
2: He wasn't as well known as Martin Luther King. Right. But he was pretty close to wow. that type of status. Okay. Yeah. Very close. Very, very close. Yeah. Well,
1: please and enlighten us. <laughs> the- the thing, and I want to say this really quick before getting into it. Uh, so I'm going back to school in January and one of the classes that I have to take over the next, you know, couple semesters, I have to take a um fine arts class and they have like a list of different classes that I can choose from. So like introduction to arts, introduction to theater and this and that. And I found that they have a black arts class and I looked at it and it's like all about black culture and how they played into arts and music and stuff. And I was, looked at it. I can't take it, or I'm not going to take it for like uh, two semesters, I think. I might take it next semester. I can't remember. But there was only one class available. That was it. I live in the South. And so, you know, maybe that's because nobody wants to take it or because the college doesn't want to put money towards that. But then, you know, it's probably a mixture of both. But that's systemic racism and like not being able to give the adequate education for Black culture. And so... I'm crossing my fingers I get to take that class because I would be, and I am highly interested in that one. (laughs) But that just shows why there's a lot of Black history that we don't know about because it's not taught in our very heavily white-centric schools, Mm. whitewashed history. So, okay, Medgar Evers. So Medgar Evers was born the third of five children um, on July 2nd, 1925 in Decatur, Mississippi. His family owned a small farm, while his dad also worked at a sawmill. Due to the times, Medgar and his siblings had to walk 12 miles. I cannot imagine this, but 12 miles just to attend the segregated school near them. When Medgar was only 12 years old, one of his neighbors was lynched, and his bloody clothes were hung on the fence for an entire year, so that it was used as like an intimidation tactic. I'm very confused. Why were the clothes like... could? Other people not take
3: it down? Was it law enforcement that put it uh,
1: up? Well, the, well no, it was the people who lynched the neighbor, but the black people were not going to take the clothes down because they, that would put them in danger of getting lynched themselves. Okay. And the white people weren't going to take it down because they knew it was an intimidation tactic that scared the black people. So,
3: yeah. What's wrong with people anyway?
1: Oh. Uh, a lot, a lot. Now, uh, as a teen, he would witness white groups of other teens and adults drive around and look for a black person to beat up or even run over with their car. So he witnessed this growing up. Like for sport? For sport. Like just, just for kicks and giggles? For shits and giggles. This was their, this was their Friday night fun. (sighs) Saturday night fever was them torturing other black Members in their community. And this is Medgar's experience, but this was very common amongst many Black communities, um, uh, especially in the South. Now, after Medgar was a sophomore in high school, he decided to follow his brother Charles and he joined the Army. He served from 1943 to 1945, and he fought in the Battle of Normandy in 1944 in a segregated battalion. So even within the Army, he was still segregated. Now, at the end of the war, Medger, Medger was honorably discharged as a sergeant in 1945. When he got home, he did finish his high school degree. And then in 1948, he enrolled at Alcorn Agricultural and Mechanical College, majoring in business administration. During his time at college, he joined the debate team, football team, track team, sang in the choir, and was junior class president. Dang. I was what a grocery so list. Okay. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> you signed up for everything. Um, I joined a cult. So like you could uh, definitely <laughs> beat me. <laughs> I was I was just really impressed with all that. Dang, yeah. Um he graduated um and earned his Bachelor of Arts in 1952. Um while he was in college, he ended up meeting his future wife, a Murley. Is that how you say your name? Merley. Merly, I think how it's Merly. It? That's how you say it. M-Y-R-L-I-E. I think it's how you spell it. I think it. At least That's how I have it in my notes. Merly. That's what I'm going to say. I'm so sorry if I pronounced that wrong. I, I did write out some pronunciations for a couple of minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm bad at pronunciation. Um, so Merly Bleasley. Together, they had three children, Daryl, uh, Rena and James. The couple moved to Mound Bayou, Mississippi where Evers became an insurance salesman. Now, in Mound Bayou, it was a town developed by African-Americans. And as an insurance salesman, he got to see a lot of the community. And he saw very quickly how a lot of the African-American community was just super poor. And he did not like that. And he decided that he was going to do something about it. So he also, he also saw overseas when he was in the military, he saw how um Black people were treated as equals. And he was like, I want to bring that to America. He even said that when he was um coming home, he said that to some of his like bat- uh, battalion, like fellow military officers. Comrades. Um, and some of, yeah, comrades. Yeah. <laughs> and some of them actually like, Desperately wanted to stay in the other countries because there they were seen as equal and they didn't want to come back to America. So he was like, you know what? I'm going to bring that over here. I'm going to do something to change this. This isn't fair that my community is this poor. So Medgar became an activist for the desegregation uh, uh, movement and he became the president of the Regional Council of Negro Leadership which I will call it the RCNL. Now this organization um, they organized actions for civil rights movements. So Evers helped organize the RCNL's boycotts of gasoline stations that denied blacks and uh, the use of the station's restrooms. So this was very common in there that like there were certain what? restrooms that only whites could use. And so if black people couldn't go in the bathroom they they would do a boycott of The same of shit that
3: comes out of all of station. you. What?
1: <laughs> exactly. Okay, okay. Exactly. that's fine.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, in 1954, we have the Brown versus Board of Education ruling. This ruling made segregation in public schools illegal. So this was kind of the catalyst to really help push the civil rights movement further and to really get de- desegregation going. Now, after this ruling, Medgar tried to apply to the publicly funded, so, so public University, uh, the University of Mississippi Law School, but he was rejected based on his race. Now, even though segregated schools were considered illegal, it was not a change that happened overnight. Being in a segregated community, these are very held opinions. I don't even want to call them beliefs, but I guess for some, it was beliefs within their religion that like segregation was biblical. And so trying to change those beliefs is not something that's going to happen overnight. And so it took and this is what's so frustrating to me and I feel like probably to many others, is like ye, the Black community had the backing of the law and yet they still had to take it into their own hands to push the civil rights movement forward and get desegregation to actually start fucking happening. It's frustrating. And, and that's coming from a white person. So I can't imagine how much more frustrating it is for the Black community. Kyle, what year were you born? 71. Okay.
2: And, I, and, and this is, New Jersey too, so I'm I'm north. So the anything in this segregation era, I don't know personally. I didn't experience personally uh, colored only this, colored only that. I didn't experience any of that personally, and I really didn't hear about it until I got into school because we were in a more urban area, so we definitely heard, heard heard a lot about it. And occasionally, I'd hear my mother. Mentioned something about it.
3: Your mom probably had some stories about her experience. My dad,
2: my mother never experienced because she was born in New Jersey. But my father, okay, or the man who raised me, he was born in Georgia. So, oh, okay, one reason why he left Georgia at a very young age is because he hated that people would call him boy. Oh, and gosh. you know, and um, so he was like, I, 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 I can't do this because I'm gonna kill somebody. <laughs> you know. Yes. Like,
1: <laughs> right, I can't blame him. So
2: he came, he came north, and there had been a lot of stories like that of migrations from people from the south to the north. But you know, not everyone can do that. Not everyone had the opportunity to do it or the courage to do it. So you try to make the best of it where you were.
1: Yeah, as somebody who has moved state to state, you know, multiple times uh, and across the country a couple of times, it is terrifying and also very expensive to uproot your life, and so. I can understand why some people either A, couldn't financially afford it or B, were terrified to because a lot of these areas, I'm sure it was deeply like integrated within multiple generations of families. And so you're having to choose to move away from your grandparents, your parents, your siblings. That is really hard to have to do. Okay, so following the Brown versus Board of Education decision, the local whites uh founded the White Citizens Council in <laughs> Mississippi. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I am mean, you were gonna laugh when I said I that. I
2: <laughs> as if they needed more ways to be right. You know, in right. power and controlled and recognized, as if they needed more. Yeah. You
1: know? Heaven forbid you drink from the same fountain. Uh I yeah. mean the whites had <laughs> All the audacity. Yeah. Then yeah. plus some. So unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> numerous local chapters started to spring up all across the deep south of the white citizens council. Now, their whole mission was to fight against desegregation in schools and even within the community. Now, they would work to keep black people from voting and pushed the public challenge law that allowed two registered voters to challenge the legitimacy of another voter. So like they would do this in a way to like illegitimize Black votes. So like a Black person would be standing in line trying to vote and then two white voters would come up and be like, you know, you're not registered or you're an illegitimate voter. And then they would get that Black person's vote thrown out. This worked so well in disqualifying Black votes that in one district, Black votes were purged by 95%. Wow, ninety-five percent. How
3: do you have yeah, that many but that was, white people? What we have a lot of white people. Jesus Christ, they're everywhere. And they all, <laughs> they all the black
1: or all, all the white the
3: people look the same. So they just keep like going back.
1: <laughs> Everyone's in line fighting over the votes and who who qualifies. Yeah, they they did this and they disqualified many, many, many black voters. And they and this was legal. Even though the Black person was legally allowed to vote, they were, like, legitimate voters. Just because two white people came in and were like, no, we, we don't think so, their vote would get thrown out. So, very shady shit. Now, uh, they would also boycott Black-owned businesses, threaten jobs, get people fired or evicted from their homes, keep them from getting loans, and more. Even though they publicly denounced violence, many of their members incited violence, which led to lynchings, murders, rapes, assaults, and, and arson. So them saying like, oh, like we're against violence. It was just to save face, but behind closed doors, they were, you know, stirring up all the shit and causing a lot of, a lot of violence to happen. On November 24th, 1954, Medgar was named as the National Association of Advancement of Colored People's first ever field secretary of the state of Mississippi. So, this was literally the first one ever in Mississippi, and Medgar got to hold that title. Yeah, so the National I'm Association. I'm sorry, what does that title mean?
2: <laughs> NC double.
1: NCAA. N C N- yeah. D A C P yeah
2: Double N C N- A. N double A-C-P. A C P Yeah, N C Double A Oh God, I'm I'm getting tongue tied. N double N- A C P yes.
3: What does his exact title <laughs> yeah. though like
1: mean? What is it- Field secretary. I'll get. I'll get into okay. it, like what his position was. Yeah. Gotcha. But so the national. We'll say that again. The National Association of Advancement of Colored People. We will be calling it the NAACP. Thank God for short. Moving forward, and that's what they called themselves. They shorthand theirs.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. So mm-hmm.
1: in this position, um, he helped organize boycotts and he set up new local chapters of the NAACP within Mississippi. They helped fight for voting rights for the African American community and more. So that was one of their big things was like really fighting for the voting rights of uh, African-Americans. Did that answer your question, Lola? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. <laughs> he became, uh, Medgar became a very prominent leader in the civil rights community, like we said, and he would regularly work 20 hours a day. This is not okay. a week. This is a day organizing marches, putting together protests, joining and leading prayer... Ver- mm-hmm. the, Virgils, vigils, <laughs> and <yeah.
3: laughs> I thought you were going to say prayer. Virgins.
1: I, it was kind of oh. like vigils and virgins came together and made me. I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> uh, I almost did it again. Vigils. That's a hard word for me. Good Lord. He would also uh, help bail out people who had been arrested for trying to protest. And so. He did a lot. He was a very, very busy man. See, I want that
3: job. Whoever bails people out from getting arrested in Uh protest, that's the job I want. (laughs) That's the job you want. (laughs) Just slap somebody on the counter and be like,
1: fuck you. Let them go. (laughs) Let them out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I cannot imagine working 20 hours a day. No, i he okay. <laughs> I'm concerned for his sleep habits. When passion and like, I feel like he was so passionate about doing what was right that it overpowered the negative aspects of like having to work 20 hours. And that passion and that drive just kept him going every day yeah. to keep pushing the, the civil rights movement forward. It's just, I can't imagine. I'm like, how did you not just like fall over from being so tired? <laughs> I can't i mean a superhero if there ever was one mm-hmm. now with his prominent position as an activist uh came a lot of trouble from the white supremacist groups now on may 28th uh, 1963 a molotov cocktail was thrown <sighs> mm-hmm. into the carport of his home yeah on june 7th 1963 just a few days later this is like like a little over a week later uh, Medgar was nearly run down by a car after he came out of the NAACP's office in Jackson, Mississippi.
3: Oh my God. And this was just
1: a few times, there were like multiple times that like things happened to him or um, his family was scared or threatened. Like it was incessant basically. Huh. Now, yes, the community was in uproar over desegregation and the Brown versus Board of Education ruling, but the church, oh, they were furious. Over this ruling. The church had some had some words. Just a little, just just a smidge. Now, during Mississippi's 1956 legislative session, officials had proposed a depriving churches of their tax exempt status if they quote practiced integration. What? I mean, yeah. Yep, tried to take away their tax exempt if they started to integrate their churches. But honestly, now, what this, a small price to pay in order to I be know, on I the right side of history. Up. Right. I would have I given it up. But it wasn't passed. Like it was met with opposition and eventually it didn't go through. But that didn't stop them. They were like, we're, we're still going to fight for this. So in 1960, just four years later, Mississippi state legislator developed the quote, church property bill. Now, this bill gave churches the ability to break away from their denomination if they changed their position on segregation. So if a church was pro-segregation and then tried to integrate and change their stance, this bill gave the churches that didn't agree the ability to split away from the denomination but still hold ownership of the church building, the property, the supplies, curriculum, like everything inside. They got to still hold ownership because used to they'd have to, Relinquish it back to their denomination, and then like start their own church and start from scratch. Mm. So they 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 won in a in that way. Okay um, one one of the writers of this bill stated, when integration finally comes to Mississippi, it will come through the front doors of the churches in the disguise of religion. That's dumb as hell. Okay. Yeah. Just. Just. No words, really. Now, the church property bill passed the Senate by a comfortable twenty-nine to ten votes, and the House by an overwhelming eighty-seven to thirteen. Governor Ross Barnett signed the measure into law without comment. So, a very racist community and state, love a no Black commenter at this really? time. No comment. Yeah. Now, on Sunday, June 9th, 1963, four students came together with Medgar Evers and Reverend Ed King to try and, quote, cross the color line, is what they called it. Now, this was at the First Baptist Church. Now, this was the largest Baptist church in Mississippi, and then they also were going to try it at the Galloway Memorial Methodist Church in Jackson, Mississippi. So, Medgar drove the students to the Baptist church himself. The students were met out front by a deacon and told that their presence in church would, quote, disrupt the worship end quote now the reason he used that exact phrase was because it was illegal during this time to disrupt a worship worship service so by him saying this it was giving like he was like setting it up to have them be able to be arrested if they didn't leave and so it was giving him legal grounds basically to have them arrested They didn't let that stop them. So they left that church and they went down the street and they went to the Galloway Methodist Church, which was like, I think one block away or so. Now, unfortunately there, ushers also came out and met them and didn't allow the students to enter. Even though the churches, both of them had a very similar response by refusing to let the students into their worship service, the way they responded afterwards was drastically different. So the mayor of the city was a member of the Methodist Church, and he and many members were very pro-segregation. But the senior pastor, Reverend Dr. W.B. Shayla, had always preached that there can be no color bar in a Christian church. So that Sunday, during the middle of the service, he was informed about what had happened. And after that, he rose to the pulpit, gave a short sermon on the Spirit of Christ, and he then pulled out a prepared statement that he had written and carried in his pocket for weeks. Just in case, black worshippers had been denied entry to their worship service, and he tendered his resignation and quit right there on Damn, the spot.
3: Damn, go hard! I know,
1: Kyle. I was like,
3: Good job. Speak to this, please.
1: I
2: know, a, I know, a pastor, former pastor, who is in our time. Mm-hmm. This is not many years ago. Yeah, tried to. Uh, integrate his church, believe it or not, um, and try to bring in several black families that wanted to join the church. And he was told directly by the board that if you try to welcome them feminist members, we're going to fire you. <laughs> what? And he quit. What year was this? And not too long ago. And you may know him. You may know his name. You can ask him the story. He'll know more about it than I do. Of course, his name is Todd Vick.
1: Oh, my God. That was Todd? Yeah. Wait, that sounds familiar. Am I supposed to know Todd Vick? Because that sounds very familiar. I'll tell you about him later. Oh, my God. Okay.
2: And he he resigned.
1: Uh, So that is, it is just so frustrating. I can't I don't like wow. I have no words. I have like we have in our in our
2: time that still is happening.
1: Oh my gosh. It
3: is. I literally have no words. I have no words. You can't say that racism is dead. Like anybody that holds that position to this day, you literally can't back that with anything.
2: Yeah. A friend of mine told me that and we're good friends. And he said racism isn't real. And I said, yeah, to you, because you've never been a victim of race since the- I was
3: going to say, is this person a person of color?
2: <laughs> he's, he's not. Okay. And mostly people, I, I've heard a few token people say of our color, and I, I don't know what they're talking about. I just think, you Candace know, Owens. you don't, yeah, Candace <laughs> people. I don't, know, I, don't know, I don't know what you're talking I mean, you just, you know, yeah. that green is, is has got you all messed up yeah. in your head. So yeah. you know that that's okay, and that's, I get it, okay, you were chasing the dollars, and you don't care who you trample along the way, that's, yep. you know, right, so, but when people that are not of any color say it, you know, I'm like, "How do you know mm-hmm. Tell me how you know, because Fox News told you oh God yeah. tell me how you know it's, it it isn't real uh, wait tell uh, me how you know their first <laughs> response, I have a black friend. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have black people that tell me that. Black people tell me all the time. I yeah, like, sure, okay. Whatever oh. you say. <laughs> okay, okay. You know, and, they, yes. and, and most of them, most of them think racism probably, you know, most of them probably think racism is, you know, burning across in, 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 in the local town square. Well, right. We don't see that anymore. So racism is dead. Yeah. But. They don't know systemic racism.
1: Exactly.
2: They don't. They don't know how it affects education, jobs, communities, healthcare, everyday life. they no clue about that. Politics, healthcare. There's a there's a troubling statistic that I heard recently that there are more deaths in prenatal. Yeah. Um, in in prenatal care, or there's there's such a dispairance I can't talk tonight.
1: Discrepancy. There, there's discrepancy. <laughs> Infant and
3: child mortality rates for pe- people of color are so much higher.
2: Much higher. Yeah. Astronomically. And the care for the, the mothers, the prenatal care for mothers is, is so poor uh, in, in our community. And that's systemic. Mm-hmm. You know Exactly. Th- that is. I'll tell you a little quick story. Sorry to cut the, your story off. But yes, yes, please. Please. I was born premature. Baby Kyle. And, yeah, I was born premature. And um, my mother, she was 17, and she didn't know Uh, much of anything. And so, you know, this whole thing. I was in an incubator, and um, I was very light. I was incredibly light. You know, I was was much lighter than I am right now.
1: Yeah. (laughs)
2: And that's normal for for black babies. They're they're generally very, very light, and they they, they get a little color over Mm -hmm. time. They Kind of darken a little bit over time, not not drastically, but just you know they, they get their coat so to speak well, my mother, while I was an in incubator, my mother noticed that I was getting darker and darker and darker, and she she didn't know much and and she she questioned one of the nurses and said, "Why is he getting so much darker?" and they said, "Well, we're giving him melatonin, and they just gave me a lot of melatonin." What? Um, wow. And I didn't know this until recently. And I'd always wondered why I was so much darker than my family members. And when I, my mother was telling me this story, I was like, did they do that to black babies on purpose? If they, were, if they had a chance to, if you, if you baby comes, you're, in, you're premature, you've you got to be an incubator they do that on purpose because, hey, maybe he looks too white and we need to darken him up,
1: you know? Because I can't, melatonin, that's what helps you sleep. So do you mean melanin?
2: I'm sorry, melanin. melanin oh, yeah, oh, yeah, melanin that's is that's the sad.
1: pigment in the skin. I'm sorry.
2: Yeah, the, the so, mel- yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. No, 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 you're I'm good. Mel-
1: <laughs> Everyone's like,
2: what? <laughs> <laughs> well, did, wanted you to sleep more?
1: I was like, how does yeah. melatonin? Melanin. (laughs) Melanin.
3: What? As your baby is exposed to light outside the womb, naturally their body produces melanin that it wasn't producing in the womb. So, like, your DNA automatically makes you a person of color. So, your skin will not be that like blanched, pinky, you know? Yeah. But it does once it's exposed to light outside. Naturally, to protect it, it produces melanin.
1: To darken it over time, but it was happening yeah. so fast within the, oh my gosh, now that's a conspiracy. I could believe <sighs> <laughs> Somebody in healthcare, weigh in.
2: I don't know if they did it on purpose or they just didn't care. Like, it'd be okay, kind of a thing.
1: Or like, is that part of the process? Yeah, we need somebody in healthcare to like weigh in and yeah. in the... Yeah, I need to ask this question because my brother's a nurse and so I want to ask him and see what he says. He's not an OBGYN, or uh, he doesn't do babies in pregnancy and things like that, but he might be able to answer the question. But that's very curious.
3: There is no safe method to increase melanin. Oh, Jesus Christ. That's what I'm seeing right
2: now
1: on something. And she specifically said, we're giving him melanin.
2: That's what mother told me. But she said, I, I, I you know, and I remember her saying you know I didn't know I didn't know right I, I didn't know I was I was you know I was I was a kid I didn't know I just trusted what they were saying cuz she said she did question why is he getting so much darker right you know, why does he keep getting cuz just every, every time she went to see me in the in the while I was still in the incubator I was getting darker and darker and darker and yeah and so she she did question that but she said she didn't know
1: you know, she
2: she didn't know. She just
1: had a baby. Her hormones are going crazy. She's trying to recover, and she's seventeen.
2: And She was just so happy that I was alive. You know, I guess you know that she wasn't really so concerned about you know, the, hey Lord, because she, she was praying. She wasn't a Christian at that time, but she knew she knew something, some element of prayer, like Lord, just don't let me lose my baby. Yeah, <laughs> <You> know, like. <laughs> We'll worry about the rest of it later on. <laughs> yeah, it's
1: very scary. My husband was a preemie, and he was so small that his mom had to go to the store and buy Cabbage Patch doll clothes. <gasps> because, Stop. Because, I'm not kidding, because preemie clothes were swallowing him. So she had to go buy Cabbage Patch doll clothes, and that's what he wore for the first like month of his life. And he's so buff yeah. now. Um, and Kyle's so know, buff. He, this is weird. <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't know. not him tall. Yeah, I'm tall.
2: I'm the tallest. You know, I was the tallest in my family for a long time. But I'm tall, six I'm three. Yeah. Oh my oh, yeah. god. my husband's so tall. I forget how tall too, 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 you are. Shorty.
1: Oh my god. Yeah. See, Lola thinks I'm super tall, so she was shocked when I told her I was five four. She's like, "How are you five four? <laughs> like, I thought you're way taller." I was like, I'm like, "Yeah, tall. me too. I don't know. Just, I don't know, I don't I don't know. know. why do people you think you I'm tall? tall. I'm not tall. <laughs> no, five four. I'm a shorty. You
3: have very like elongated features, like you're... You have an oval face. I do. And a long neck, I do. which just makes me naturally think the rest of you is very long.
1: I have a little bit longer legs, I have a little bit longer arms, so I have a short torso. <laughs> <laughs> Heard
3: that. <So>. Heard that. <laughs> that is that is me. No. Oh. Sorry, I got us off track.
1: No, I I like when we get off track. So, good. Now, so the minister or the Reverend, he resigned right on the spot. And also, the associate minister followed suit. So they both quit their jobs at that moment. Now, on the other hand, the Baptist Church, hard right turn. And that very same day, the Board of Deacons had a meeting and put together a resolution backing the church's actions, turning away the black worshipers. The motion passed unanimously. They even made a statement saying that the FBC would confine its assemblies and fellowship to those other than the Negro race. So, like, they dug their heels in and then dug them in again and then just, like, really made sure they were going nowhere on this issue. Now, Reverend Ed King and Medgar had a meeting at an all-African Methodist church a few days later to talk about the integration efforts and how to move forward. During this meeting, Medgar stated that he knew that the congregations of both of those churches were full of people who opposed desegregation, but that he was deeply moved by the actions of the reverend. He said, quote, what they said, what they did, refusing to preach in a segregated church now that has made me feel better than anything in this whole movement in many days. I can't imagine how like, uplifting that would have been to have somebody as, as prominent as a pastor because you already have the law, you already have Brown versus Board of Education helping, trying to push civil rights in that direction. But now you have somebody within a church saying, nope, I can't, we're not gonna do this. So I'm sure that was beyond uplifting for him. Now, at this meeting, uh, Reverend Ed King left the meeting telling Medgar he would see him at the office the next day, not knowing that that was actually the last moment that he would see him. Medgar stayed at the church to continue working and didn't return home till a little after midnight on June 12th, 1963. Now, while he was working, President Kennedy was giving a televised speech on civil rights issues after many acts of violence on an Alabama university campus um, broke out due to integration. Now, as Medgar arrived home that day, he grabbed a pile of NAACP shirts that read Jim Crow must go and got out of his car. As he was walking up to his house, a bullet struck him in the back, passing through his heart and knocking him to the ground. Surprisingly, Medgar was able to stand and stagger 30 feet before passing out at his front door. Merle, his wife, and his three children, James, Rena, and Daryl Evers, were home at the time of the assassination. Their son Daryl recalled the night, quote, We were ready to greet him because every time he came home, it was special for us. He was traveling a lot at that time. All of a sudden, we heard a shot. We knew what it was. Daryl and the other children, or that was the end of the quote, Daryl and the other children fled to the bathroom to hide in the bathtub. This was something that his father had something told them. They did. Yep, trained right. them to do. Now, right. Murley went out and found Medgar at the front door, shot and bleeding. The kids ran out of the bathroom. Uh, I'm assuming after they heard their mom yelling Medgar's name. And they came outside and found their dad clinging to life, and um, I'm assuming at this point he was unconscious, because the kids started yelling for their dad to wake up. Ugh. I yeah, I know that that broke my heart when I heard that. That's fucking gutting. That now, I want you to remember, he's been shot in the back. The bullet went through his back and then out, like I think it was like his shoulder, chest area. Like, full through. He's bleeding everywhere. He's unconscious. Murley gets him and takes him to the hospital. They arrive at this hospital only to be denied entry because he was a black man. And this was an all white hospital. Murley had to sit there and tell them, like, who he was and everything. And then they finally, shockingly, allowed him entry into the hospital. He was actually the first black man to uh, be allowed entry into an all-white hospital, Unfortunately, Medgar passed away 50 minutes later. Now, when they did the investigation um, of the scene, they found the bullet ripped through his back, exited his chest, went through a window into their home, uh, went through a wall, ricocheted off of their refrigerator, hit their coffee pot, shattered their coffee pot, and then the bullet landed on their counter next to a watermelon, and that's where they found the bullet. How close in proximity was this person? Shooting him. He he was uh I can't I don't I don't know if I ever heard how far he was. He was from what I can imagine, because I watched the movie and they did a really good scene on it. He was a good maybe a block ish, maybe a three quarters yeah, of a, a block. Rifle.
2: Yeah,
1: he had a high powered rifle and It was a rifle. I, it ripped through everything. hmm Yeah. So, uh, like I said before, Medgar was a prominent leader during the civil rights era, making him a target for the KKK and other white supremacy groups. He had already had a few attempts um, to murder him before, which left him and his family in constant fear. So a large white supremacist population and the KKK were present in Jackson and its suburbs. The risk was so high that before his death, Medgar and his wife, Murley, had trained their children on what to do in case of a shooting, um, a bombing, or any other kind of attack. Now, uh, Medgar, who was regularly followed home by at least two FBI agents um, and one police car, uh, none of them were there. Not, not one. Not one FBI agent, not one police car followed him home that night. I mean... It was a setup. No words necessary. Like, come on. There has been speculation that many members of the police force at the time were members of the Ku Klux Klan. I did not find any, like, solid proof that that was the case. But... I'm speculating. if (laughs) If we look at history, this has been proven time and time and time again in multiple jurisdictions, Chicago to California to Florida, everywhere. You Google Ku Klux Klan police, you're going to find so many articles. I did a just a quick little Google search um, and I found that in Florida, there were officers connected to the KKK, KKK as early as the early 2010s. And that was just like, I literally looked for like 30 seconds. So I'm sure if I dug deeper, There'd be an article that came out yesterday. You know? Yeah, that
2: that was a calculated plan, as as the KKK was looking for more ways to to do what they do, but but with more legality, so to speak. Yeah, and that was one of the plans that they came up with: is let's let's infiltrate the p- p- police force. Yes. which actually isn't very far away from the origin of the police force, uh, which was initially. Created to track down runaway slaves. Slaves, yes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it has a long, long history. And it, you know, when 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 a person of color says we don't trust the police, it, it's it's not some you know rat thing. It's it's not some street thing. It's not some you're doing it to be. I inherently, yeah. Mean, cool. I inherently <laughs> yeah, you no know, knew no no one told me no one told me don't trust the police. I knew not to trust, I knew to be afraid. I knew not to trust them. I knew to, to, I remember I, I had my first car. I was, I was at my first job. I was probably maybe 2021. 20, well, not my first car, but second car at this point. But anyway, still, I was working in, in a town called Nanyuet, which was probably about 30 minutes from where I live. And I remember one night I got pulled over and it was dark. And I remember the, the policeman coming to the car, and I said, Mr. Officer, just please know that my registration's in the glove box. I have to reach over there to get it. So please don't shoot me. Oh. Because I'm not going to shoot. But I knew to say that. Oh, my God. I God. knew <laughs> to say that. i never had to say you that. You know, if he thinks I'm going to, I knew to say that. I knew. Yeah. No one told me. But I knew to say that. I grew up in, well, I went to high school in Virginia, which was more predominantly white than where I lived in New Jersey. And most of my friends were white. My best friend was white. And, you know, he got pulled over before. I'm sure he never said that.
1: Yeah. No. <laughs> you know,
2: you, you never, notice, never. like, what are you pulling me over for? Yeah. You know. You know, we we you know we don't get that privilege.
1: No, I use that
2: I use that word. We don't get that privilege. You know, we don't get the. I'm not going to go into the story, but you know, because I can go into a whole other story and it's not a good one with another. Well.
1: We'll bring you you on for another day. (laughs) We'll bring you on another time because I like all these stories. Yeah. No, I never had to say that. That never crossed my mind. I was scared, but I was scared because I was going to get a ticket and my ass was like, how the fuck are you going to pay this? You're broke. That was my fear. It was never like, I'm not going to get to go home and eat a snack. Like, I'm not going to go to see my family. It was never, I never had that thought. And my parents
3: will have to ID my body. You never thought about that kind of thing. Yeah. That's how you, if you don't, you don't think you have privilege, just think about this scenario and what are you more likely to say? What what did I do, officer? Or please don't shoot me. I don't have a gun. I just need to reach for paperwork. That is all.
1: Yeah. I have somebody close to me that is a trans person and they live in a very, very red state that has a very, you know they're very discriminatory when it comes to trans people, and when they have to drive in bigger cities, they will have their partner drive so that it's they they have a less likely chance of getting pulled over or stopped. And that's probably like the, the closest that I can come to even slightly understanding what the black community has has had to endure and fears just by being stopped by the cops. I'm gonna keep going with the story, but I'm sure we can keep on. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. Conversation. Yeah. I'm sure we will. Though. This conversation will um, never end. That's the point. It re- and it none end. of this it will end. end. Yeah, it shouldn't. It should keep going. It should. Be, we should have these conversations with our children and continue to have these conversations forever, forever. Mm-hmm. End of story. Okay. So Medgar's funeral was on June 19th, and he was buried at Arlington National Cemetery, where he received full honors from the military. It's reported that there were around 3,000 attendees at his (laughs) memorial service. I cannot imagine 3,000, but that just goes to show. Well deserved. Medgar, yeah, Medgar had spent many years being one of the forerunners for equality and desegregation in the civil rights movement. So, his impact on the African American community was very deep and is still felt to this day. Now, the murder weapon, including a fresh fingerprint on the rifle scope, was found in a field nearby. The police were able to trace the rifle back to a man named Byron Day LeBeckwith Jr. Now, Byron Day LeBeckwith was born in Klaus, California, but his father died from pneumonia when he, uh, Byron was only five. Then him and his mom moved and settled into life in Greenwood, Mississippi, which is like about 90 miles from uh, Jackson. Unfortunately, Byron's mom died when he was 12 from lung cancer, and he was then raised by his aunt and uncle, where he attended a prestigious prep school in Bell Buckle, Tennessee. So he had some privilege. In 1942, Byron enlisted in the Marines where he was a machine gunner and served in World War II. During his time in war, he was shot in the side and ended up being honorably discharged in 1945. I'm going to hold my comment um cuz it was not a nice one after that. <laughs> <laughs> I had a I had an intrusive thought come in and I thought, no, let's not get canceled. Right no, <laughs> let the intrusive
3: thoughts win today. I was just going to say that shot, man. Yep. <laughs> no, I already I I hear your intrusive <laughs> thought. It's so fucking loud. God. Right?
1: I don't need to say it. I don't need That's to say okay. it. It's okay, yeah. Uh, Is this person alive still? No. I, yeah, he died. Yeah, he Oh, died. we'll just say the comment. <laughs> not soon. <laughs> that shot should have taken him out, okay? Yeah. It should have just He not Sorry, saved. not sorry, okay? Our world would have been a lot better because this guy, I'm, a, I'm telling you, he was a piece of shit if there ever was one. Now, let's keep going. Where was okay. I? Uh, I got distracted by my intrusive thought. Intrusive thought about the shot. <laughs> uh, okay, so he got discharged, honorably discharged in 1945. After he was discharged, he moved to Rhode Island where he married his wife, Mary Louise Williams. Then they relocated to Mississippi where they settled in Byron's hometown of Greenwood. They had a son, but they ended up but then ended up divorcing when Byron remarried another woman. Now Byron was a salesman for most of his life. He sold tobacco, fertilizer, wood stoves, and other random things. When the Brown versus Board of Education ruling was made in nineteen fifty-four, Byron immediately joined the White Citizens Council and later the KKK. Are we shocked? No, we're not. <laughs> not at all. Now, Byron was an active member of the Greenwood Episcopal Church of the Nativity, which shockingly, like the Episcopal Church is a very like, especially back in the 70s, it really, they really started to change and become more affirming. And it's like, really, this was the denomination you, I was really thought it was going to be Baptist. So I was, I was slightly shocked at that one. But at this time, they're all racist. So, you know. Well, he was very well known in the area because he would write letters to the editor of the newspaper that were <laughs> a clusterfuck of Christianity and white supremacy. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to read you, I'm going to read you one of these. Oh quotes. God. Somebody say this. <sighs> yeah. Okay. Quote, I shall oppose any person, place, or thing that opposes segregation. And further, when I die, I will be buried in a segregated cemetery. When you get to heaven, you will find me in the park that has a sign saying four whites only. And if I go to Hades, I'm going to raise hell all over Hades until I get to the white section. For the next 15 years, we here in Mississippi are going to have to do a lot of shooting to protect our wives, children, and ourselves from bad insert N word here. I wish you guys could see what face right now. They think that there's going to be a white section
3: in, in heaven and
1: in <laughs> and not just in heaven. He's like, if I go to hell, there's going to be a whites-only section, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna make sure I get there. What?
2: What? May, may I? No. Um, yes, we have to protect our wives and children. One of the things that the The media did after slavery, because in order to be so destructive to a people, you have to vilify these people so with the Native Americans, they were savages, so when they're going in doing these genocidal acts, hey, they're savages, yeah, you know it's in the consciousness of the people of that day, they're savages. They were going to kill us if we went in their territory. They were going to kill us if we tried to go west. I mean, they were going to surround our wagons and kill our children and kill our women and scalp us. They're savages. We've got to do something. So they, they, the propaganda goes out about this as they target this group because they want what they have. And so when when these genocidal acts, lynching, hangings, these horrible acts happen, hey, you know, these are, these are animals. So what the media would do shortly after slavery is they would uh, consistently put um, false articles in the newspapers of black men raping white women and doing terrible things to white women. And so, again, this propaganda that these black men, these angry black men, they're free now. They're going to come into your home, rape your children, kill your babies. And it's in the newspapers over and over and over again. So that's where some of that came from. And it became a real threat to them. You know, it wasn't all hatred. It was, you're a threat to me. You're
1: going to hurt us. They were being controlled by fear and fear that was guided by misinformation and propaganda. Sounds familiar? I was was just about to say, like, oh my gosh, that's that's the world we still freaking live in. And in reference to like Black Lives Matter, like, how many times, like, I will say, no organization, I don't care what it's for, is going to be perfect. Like, they're going to have skeletons in their closet. They're going to make mistakes. They're Mm going to, you know, a lot of them can be sketchy no matter what. But you see in the media, especially right wing media, Anytime anything happens with the Black Lives Matter organization or um any black person that was part of you know um protests or this or that that has something come up that is illegal, they just i mean flies on honey, they sit with it and they just push it out as far as they can, or George Floyd when he died, they just wanted to focus on his past or the fact that he had. A, white, a bag of white powder with him as if all of that justified in their head the cop's use of force that took his life. And, and it's like, you're just using all of that other stuff to justify your inherent bias and not sit with the uncomfortable. It was like their way of just gaslighting themselves into like, oh, there's not really a problem right here. You know, this is just, society. This is what's comfortable. I don't want to change. I don't want to think of how, how this is uncomfortable or how I or my ancestors have played into this. I, no, he was a bad guy.
2: Could you imagine in if Obama, when he was running for president, could you imagine had he said, I can shoot someone in Times Square and, and, and get away with it. Could you imagine had Obama said that during his presidential oh campaign?
1: Exactly. It would have been...
2: There would be no Obama. Exactly. There'd be no eight years. That statement would have... Okay. Yeah. Black man threatening to shoot it? Okay. There's no way. Right. No and way. And then you,
1: you have Trump, the the whitest orange man there ever lived, come in and... <laughs> we, <laughs> Sorry. They, they, they and I, because I voted for him in 2016, biggest regret of my life, just brushed off everything he ever said. Oh, it's locker room talk. It's, and I talk, I'm actually writing a book and I talk about this in my chapter where it is, we had been primed by what we were taught within the church, uh, especially as women, that like you are subservient to men. And then what we are taught within history and our culture and politics, we had been primed to take all of that bullshit and be like, okay, this is fine. And just keep moving on. And they've been doing it for years and they still continue to do it. Oh my gosh. I'm gonna need a Xanax after this.
3: I'm just gonna <laughs> at least we're becoming <laughs> self-aware now. Cause I don't think they knew yes. what they were doing. Not to say that's that makes it right, because it doesn't. No. But like no. the more self aware, you know, our generations are, I feel like the better it's gonna get. I'm looking up on on that. You know, in that regard, but
1: you are right. Try to see we're we're trying to see the, the silver lining for sure. And and I do want to point out the difference between when I read that quote, Lola and I's response was like, Oh my god, this guy had the all the audacity to think there was a white section in have in the afterlife, whatever that is. And and Kyle, the black man, is like, let's focus on their vilifying the black community. And that's just how like Exactly we don't this is it. see you're seeing it firsthand. This is, it.
3: This, has, this is why we're having this conversation. Yes. And thank you for pointing that out and bringing that. hmm Okay. And also, I had no idea about, you said that the, like, law enforcement was created to track down slaves. Is that right?
1: Yeah. hmm Yeah. I, yeah. that has never occurred to me. That's
2: how that's it started. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: I didn't learn that until I started, like, down the journey of decolonization. God. Yeah. Right. Didn't know that. Makes sense. So, you know,
2: these things are, these things are, there's things that the medical field, the, the psychology and uh, people of that nature, the mental health community, they, they talk about this uh, DNA that's deep into the fabric of cultures. And, you know, it's not a natural DNA, but it's, it's a trauma-based DNA that's also passed down genetically. So it's kind of like how I know, how I knew. Okay, Mister Officer, my stuff is in the glove box here. Kind of, you know, please don't shoot me. That those fears, those things of protection, we gotta protect. We gotta, we gotta keep it this because this is safe. And you know, the 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 reality is, I mean, and, and and I don't, I don't mean this in any kind of way other than what his what history shows us, but we don't always see it. White people, Europeans, mm-hmm. particularly in this matter, are the, are the most have, have proven to be the most destructive, brutal,
1: absolutely
2: you know, bloodthirsty segment of population. I mean from Napoleon to the Romans to I mean the list goes on and on, we want it. We'll come in and bloodbath everyone to get what we want. And no one's going to say anything to us. So, so this is, this is, you know, this is, this goes back and back. And and we, you know, we, we get Napoleon's story and, 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 you know, these stories and we go, oh wow, Napoleon's great, man. You know, but we don't, we don't pay attention to what's happening behind the scene. The same thing we did with Bible stories, right? You know, David killed his thousands and, you know, Moses and he went in there and, you know, we, we, these were, these were heroes to us until we started thinking about the people they killed.
1: On the other side. The innocent yep.
2: lives that were destroyed, the babies, the women. I mean, like, what did these people do? And so, you know, Moses became less and less of a hero. David became less and less of a hero. Napoleon becomes less and less. Christopher Columbus becomes less and less of a hero. That motherfucker. And you start thinking Ugh. about what these people actually did to get yeah. what they had. You yeah. know, it's, it's horrible. I, I remember
3: something just occurred to me about what you said about like Moses and whatever. I don't know if there's any correlation here, but I remember this vividly. You know, those flannel graphs where you'd have the characters on a flannel graph and you, yeah, move them all around, whatever. Okay. All of the characters that were like main characters, like Jesus, Moses, Abraham, Paul, whatever, they were all white. And the people that they were, like, saying you're wrong or they were, like, hurting were people that had dark skin on those flannel graphs. I remember
1: that. Oh, my gosh. That's so heartbreaking.
3: Like, I I hadn't even thought about that until just now with what Kyle just said. It just unearthed that memory. And I was like, oh, my God. It was so normalized. And, like, the way that we viewed people we put them in white. Mm-hmm. And I don't yeah. know. Anyway, yeah. that's and all.
1: Real quick, what you were saying, um, it, that generational trauma. So when I went through yeah. my trauma recovery coaching certification, we actually had where we studied generational trauma and they taught us about how it was. And I actually had to do a, I don't know what it was called, but basically a, a, a family history based off of our trauma one of the most interesting things I ever did, my husband, not my husband, my brother was in school in nursing school at the same time and he actually had to do the same thing. And so like we got to bounce off each other and talk about our family trauma and stuff like through three generations. And it was so interesting to see how that like early generations of trauma trickled down throughout the other generations. And it's, it's one of those things you don't, you can't, science your way out of, you just know it's there. Like it's, like we don't have this like concrete proof besides what we can see in in stories and generations and we can kind of map out kind of thing. But yeah, it's it's very real. Google it, people. It's fascinating, honestly. Okay. So, where was I? Oh, the, okay. So his quote, that that clusterfuck of a, hmm yeah. Two years uh, before he mar- uh, married, Murdered, sorry, Medgar Evers. He had heard that some African Americans were going to try and attend his church. So he decided that his response was going to be, um, arriving at the church very early that Sunday and then, uh, stand on the steps while holding his pistol and to scare away any black people that would try to enter. And then when all the people would come to church and walk past him, he would tell them, quote, I'll handle things. (laughs) I, wow. Like that's, that's how he decided to handle that. Thanks, like, so, brother Byron. Yeah. He was, and
2: they trot up the stairs. Uh-huh. <laughs> at the yeah. Side. Okay.
1: <sighs> yeah. It, it, so very clear. You know, he's joined the white council. He's part of the KKK. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't like, he does not like, uh, a black people for sure. Now they found him, his print on the gun. So they were pretty sure this guy pulled the trigger. You know, he tried to say, oh, someone stole my gun. Give me a break, dude. Okay. Now the state tried to prosecute Byron for murder in 1964, um, but they ended up having to have two trials and both trials ended in a hung jury. And so they could not get everybody on the jury to agree guilty or not guilty. So it was a hung jury, meaning that like charges could still be brought on to Byron after this. And um, Mississippi, for years, had disenfranchised their black voters. Like we talked about earlier, they disenfranchised and they got a lot of their votes cast out and I'm pretty sure when that happened, they were like not registered to vote anymore and when you get pulled, like when they pull from people to the right, pool the people jury. that they yeah. you know, get from to, <laughs> to put them on the jury is from voter registration. Yeah. So right. both of these trials were, were a full white jury, right? And they, sure. had, mm-hmm. it was very common in this area. And people were talking about how, like, no white jury is ever gonna
2: right. uh,
1: find that man guilty. Right. Mm-hmm. At uh, one of his trials, the jury actually saw the former governor of Mississippi go up to Byron and shake his hand. While the like court case is literally while the trial is being held, and Medgar's <sighs> wife Merle is <sighs> on, she's on the the uh, witness stand the testifying witness stand? in that moment. You son of a yeah. bitch! So it gives credibility to Byron, and so like this this Medgar had no chance in to get of justice in these. These uh, two trials. Somebody
3: needs to wax this guy's
1: balls. <laughs> oh my gosh. Lola went there. Um, that would be should have let me out. Oh my gosh, that would be super <laughs> funny, honestly. Okay. Um also a Byron's legal fees were paid for by none other than the White Citizens Council.
2: Yeah.
1: So after both of Byron's mistrials, um, this is just fucking wild to me. Um, a parade. A fucking parade, yes, a fucking parade was held for him, welcoming him home, um, and it was organized, it said, from Jackson, Mississippi down to Greenwood, Mississippi, which is stretching 99 miles. So, I'm gonna tell you, it was hard as shit to find information about this parade, and I only learned about it because of the movie, and so I had to do some digging, and it was only based off of, like, notes from the movie and, like, the producers and stuff. That I was able to kind of piece it together, but from what I could tell, that this was actually a real thing that actually happened because the movie that's made over this is—it doesn't say based on a true story. It says this is a true story. Like they followed it to a T to make the movie, and I'll talk about the movie more at the end. But yeah, he got a he got a parade. Who? I don't want to scream, but you kind of want to. The listeners don't deserve it. <laughs> we will save your <laughs> but- ears. In the following years, uh, Byron became a leader in the segregation segregationist Phineas priesthood, um, an offshoot of the white supremacist white supremacist Christian identity movement. The group was known for its hostility towards African Americans, Jews, Catholics, and foreigners. So he was just a peach. Um, In 1973, in for. Lola's cutting her face, guys. She really wants to scream right now. (laughs) Gone full turtle into my sweater because I'm so frustrated. Yes. Uh, Well, in 1973, informants alerted the FBI that Byron planned to murder a man named AJ. Is it AJ or AI? I think it is. Either way. Uh, A man, Mr. Botnick. He he was going to murder him. So he was the director of the New Orleans-based... Hold on. I wrote it down. Okay. I believe you. <laughs> Bene Bereath, that's how you say it. Sorry, it's not spelled that way. So B'nai bereath, is how you say it, Anti-Defamation League, which is a Jewish service organization that fights against anti-Semitism. The attack was a racially motivated retaliation for comments that Botnik had made about white Southerners and race relations. Now, after many days under surveillance, a New Orleans Police Department officer stopped Byron as he was traveling by car on the Lake Pontchart. See, guys, here I go again. On a bridge, they stopped him (laughs) and they searched his car. See, I, I would just, I'm just gonna skip over that. They searched his car and found several loaded firearms, a map with highlighted directions to Botnick's home and a dynamite time bomb. So it's pretty evidence he was, you know, He was going to murder this man. Uh, On August 1st, 1975, Byron was convicted of conspiracy to commit murder, and he served nearly three years at the Anglo prison in Louisiana from May 1977 until he was paroled in January of 1980. He didn't even serve three years. Like, he was going to murder somebody. Yeah, no, that's all I got. Now, just before entering prison to serve his sentence, Uh, Byron was ordained uh, by Reverend Dewey Tucker, nicknamed his buddy. He was ordained as a... Dewey! Dewey. (laughs) Not like this, Dewey! God. Uh, He was ordained as a minister in the Temple Memorial Baptist Church, which, okay, Baptist, we're tracking here now. It was a Christian identity congregation in Knoxville, Tennessee. So now he's... I'm kind of priest or reverend, so wonderful. Don't love that for him. In 1980, the Jackson Clarion Ledger published reports on its investigation of Byron's murder trials in the 1960s. They found that the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission had ass- uh, assisted Byron's attorneys in his second trial. So the commission had worked directly against the civil rights movement in numerous ways in many different cases. But when it came to Byron's second trial, they found that the commission had used state resources in order to investigate members of the jury. Pool, so that they could help the Byron's legal team get a more sympathetic jury for his second trial. So, because of this, and after this came out, uh, Medgar's uh, widowed wife, Merle, she was like a dog with a bone. She was not going to stop, and so she fought for authorities to press charges and reopened the case. The authorities did an internal investigation and found credibility to those claims, which that Byron was set. So with that, sorry, with that, Byron was set to go back to trial in 1994. By this time, Byron was 71 years old, and he'd fought to have the case dismissed on the basis of it violating his right to a speedy trial. Now... (laughs) (laughs) the due process right and so he tried to fight that and he tried to say double jeopardy which doesn't apply because it was a hung jury so he was never actually convicted or found not guilty so charges could still be brought now the Mississippi Supreme Court ruled against his motion of a dismissal by four to three votes so it came close like there were still some people that were almost voting uh to just let him dismiss the trial um But this meant that the trial retrial was set to move forward. In January of 1994, the trial began. And on February 5th, 1994, the jury convicted Byron of first degree murder in the killing of Medgar Evers. He was sentenced to life in prison. The physical evidence was the same from the first two trials. But this trial included testimony that he had boasted about the murder at a Klan rally and to others during the three decades since. The murder. Now, according to Delmar Dennis, who acted as a key witness for the prosecution at the 1994 retrial, Byron boasted of his role in the death of Medgar Evers at several KKK rallies and similar gatherings in the years following his mistrials. Now, Byron appealed his case after he was finally sentenced, um, but the Mississippi Supreme Court upheld the conviction in 1997. The court stated that even though there was a 31-year lapse between the murder and his conviction, it did not deny him a fair trial. He sought judicial review in the United States Supreme Court, but his petition, again, was denied. On January 21st, 2001, Byron De La Beckwith died at 80 years old. He suffered from heart disease, high blood pressure and other ailments. Um I put in my notes rest in hell. Good. Good. <laughs> Even though I don't believe in it, but I wish I believed in hell because this man deserves to go there. <laughs> now, Kyle, I swear every
3: time she talks about someone that's just a piece of shit, which is often it all the time. She always ends it with like I'm not a Christian. But like, I, these are the moments I might be convinced if, if hell was real, like these are the I, moments she would
1: be happy to see these people put away. These are the moments that I wish I believed in hell because it would just help me feel better. You know, it's that very black and white, you know, <laughs> just to know that this, this man's being burned for, or this person is being burned for all eternity. It just make me feel better. That's not, that's not our reality, or at least in my opinion. Now, I want to talk about Medgar's Legacy, um, and I am going to talk about the movie, um, and I am going to link it, and I want you guys to watch it. It is phenomenal. Okay, so... I'm going to watch it. So, so, so good. Medgar's Legacy lives on in many ways. At Alcorn State University, Medgar's um, alma mater, there is a 13-foot bronze statue of him that was sculpted by African-American sculptor Ed Dwight. The Medgar Evers College was founded in his name in 1970. Chairman Enoch of the college stated, quote, The Medgar Evers College, reflecting the image of the martyred leader who dedicated his life to the cause of individual freedom, dignity, and personal fulfillment, will add another pillar of strength to the growing educational, economic, cultural, and social foundations of the central Brooklyn community in New York City. On a scroll that was presented, this is so cute, on a scroll that was presented to Medgar's wife at the opening ceremony of this college, it stated, in choosing the name of Medgar Evers, it is hoped that his ideals will inspire students and faculty of the college in their pursuit of truth as the surest path to human freedom and social justice. Now, like we've talked about, one of the biggest ways Medgar impacted social justice was with voting. On the Medgar Evers College website, it sums up this part of his legacy so well. And so I just want to read straight off their website because it's just, I mean, chef's kiss. Quote, as we watch millions of voters head to the polls in an election year, many of them African-American, other people of color and female, too often we forget that those ballots cast were paid for in blood. By exercising the franchise, the franchise, we actively pay tribute to those men and women who made it possible for us to do so. Ah that I read that and I actually I like teared up. I was like, Don't say in Jesus' name, Amen. Say in Medgar amen. Ever's name, Amen. <laughs> Medgar, amen. Ever's name, amen. Now I will be Gosh. linking all of this in the show notes of like his college and things. So you can guys just and go and peruse it. Perfect. It's really, really good. Now the movie, let's talk about the movie because the movie is so good. It is, it was made in nineteen ninety-seven. And the stars of the of the movie are Whoopi Goldberg. I mm-hmm. love me some Whoopi. I fucking love what? Whoopi Goldberg. She's like, <laughs> I would shit a brick if I got to meet her one day. I swear. Oh god. Um, and the uh, prosecution attorney is played by Alex Baldwin. So they're very big mm-hmm. name actors and actresses that they're yeah. in the in the movie. Now the movie focuses on the third retrial of. Uh, Byron, and so it's it's very quickly goes through his murder, and then the first two trials within like I swear the first like five ten minutes of the movie, and then the rest of it is their fight to get it retried. And I very much did sum up a lot of it within this case because I wanted to have enough time to talk with Kyle throughout this. But I very much implore you guys to please go and watch this movie. I do not think that I that it's available to stream anywhere um, for free. You have to purchase it on Amazon. So if you have a Prime account, please go and watch it. Um, I will add a link to it, but it will be a non commission link because we do have Amazon links that we do make a commission on. I'm not going to commission this link. I just don't feel right about doing it for this this case. So if you can go and buy it, and it's such a good movie, trust me, it's one of those ones you're going to want to watch like 13 times. It's just so good. And it's very (laughs) factual. In its presentation, but yeah, that is the awful racist the assassination case. of Medgar Evers. So, Kyle, any last like thoughts or comments? I'm so glad you came on today. I really, I really enjoyed it. Thank you, thank you
2: for having me and allowing my voice to be part of this. You know, there there's there's so much that's been a long time coming. And, and I am a forever optimist. I am. I see where we, humanity, have come from. I see where we are. And although sometimes things happen that just break us to our core, you know, the, the George Floyds, the Ahmaud Arbery's, the Emmett Till's, the list goes on. Breonna Taylor. For um Every time this happens, it, it eats a little bit more away of our fiber and our ability to be okay with it. Um, but what also happened with George Floyd particularly was um, it brought humanity to another level of consciousness, I believe. And that awareness had people all over the world saying this is wrong. This has to stop. And although he wasn't doing anything for the cause of advancement and equality, his death did a lot for the cause of equality and, and uh, unity and, and coming together. So, you know, it's just unfortunate that a death often has to occur for yeah things to get a little bit better. But that's been the way that it's been in a lot of cases. Unfortunately, I guess a better way to say it is it's been a lot of us that have died for the advancement. And I, I don't I don't the wish the cost
3: of blood is too high. Yeah.
2: it, it is very There's high. has gotta be another way. Gotta be another way. And I think that as we continue to grow in our consciousness and, and, and embrace that openness of the consciousness that's there and it's bringing people to a better place of acceptance and um, tolerance—not not tolerance, but just just acceptance for people coexist. And we see it; we see it in all different segments. You know, you mentioned the trans, uh, obviously women, people of color, things of this nature. We're, we're we're getting more accepting. Let people be who they are. Let people live. Let just people let just people live their lives and things of that nature. So, yeah.
1: and I think for me, my biggest. Hope and like that, like the silver lining and the, my optimism comes out when I think of the younger generation, especially those like in high school right now. Like we have some high school students that listen to our podcast. Shout out Libby. Uh, I have a girl that loves to listen to our podcast <laughs> all the time. I love her. Um, but like I, what up, Lib? Yeah. <laughs> I have just seen so much acceptance and open mindedness with this generation and i have seen them like i mean i have seen some protests when like right wing crazy people try to come speak at their college and they are not having it and they they i have seen time and time again let their voices be heard and so i just it, as much as we can help them continue lifting their voices keep this conversation going stand up for their friends and and family and loved ones and for what is right and to just push it forward i just like, that's where my optimism comes from because that that generation they're they're like the bulldog generation i feel like they're not going to let go and and Kyle you said
3: you know the one of the biggest things that we can do is advocate on behalf of you know people of color since we are the ones that hold the privilege is there anything else that we can do at this point in time
2: well there's a, there's a there's a very small there's only a very small percentage of people in your community that are just full of hate for people of color there's a very small percentage right now there's there's a probably a larger percentage of people that are just indifferent to the topic and the matter and it's it's that group of people that as they speak more you know it'll shine a light on those people full of hate because they feel they have a safe harbor mm-hmm. in their community. Yeah. And if they don't feel safe anymore, then hopefully that, that hatred, which is for no reason yeah, at Yeah, absolutely. All. You know, Lacey, you said mm-hmm. it earlier. I mean, uh, you know, I can't help how I was born. I was born white. What do you want me to do? I, I you know, I just swear it was. Um, you know, I was born black. What do you want me to do? What do? What do, do? Unfounded. What am I do, do? You know, you, you <laughs> want me to shoot myself in the head because you're unhappy because I'm black? I'm just, <laughs> like, that's not gonna happen. So just don't live your life. What, what does my color have to do with you? So, I think as that, you know, that that group that's been more quiet in, in historically speaking, as they get louder in their voices, the younger generation, your generation, what you guys are doing. I mean, you know, you, you may not have done this. Five years ago, you know so th- this is this is this is the type of progress I'm talking about the more voices it gives those people that small percentage in your community is, that's where the hate really is, where the evil really is where the where, the, where, the, where that you know the, the, the murder and the, the hurt comes from, it gives them a less of a place to hide yeah and, and feel safe to be the way they are
1: It is time to and, make um, them feel uncomfortable. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. You're
2: not safe here, racist. And one of the things which we know historically is when people who have a perceived power begin to think they're losing that power, then you get the grasping at the straws and all mm-hmm. these, these tactics to try to hold them to something. But, you know, this is a reality. We, we're we're brainwashed to believe that white people are the majority across the world, and they're not. Because when you, when you bring in all the other cultures, Indian, Chinese, you know, black, you know, Hispanic, you bring in all these other cultures and white people are not the majority. And I think that that's one of the reasons why they, you know, a segment fight so hard to try to keep what they have because it's inevitable. And this is not me trying to promote fear in your group, but Hey, guess what guys? I mean, you're going to have to get accustomed to the fact that, you know, Spanish is going to be more prominent in this country. Chinese is going to be more predominant in this country. Indian is going to be more predominant in this country. Black is going to be more predominant in this country. It's going to happen. You know, there's there's nothing you can do with it. There's nothing you can do about it. So you might as well just go with it. Trust me, nothing's going to happen to you. You're going to be perfectly fine. Trust me, you know? So just let the process go because we're growing and we're going to continue to grow. And we're going to find that if we all just come together, work together, love one another, things will go pretty well. They really will. Uh, we've proven that, and we continue to prove it time and time again. So, I'm happy for what we're doing, and the progress we're making, and I'm 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 optimistically excited about what's next, how we continue to move it forward, and we are, you know, you two are evidence of that. You know, here tonight, you're evidence of that.
3: Trying, trying.
1: <laughs> now, I do want to say, like when you said, like, making them feel unsafe, like making them feel, basically, making them feel uncomfortable to just, like, spout off their racist bullshit it, when they want to. Now, this is a comfortable conversation that we are having right here, us three, because we are like-minded. The uncomfortable conversations are when Uncle Billy at Thanksgiving decides to spout off some kind of racist comment. So I will challenge you if it is a safe environment for yourself to speak up in that moment. You know, it is uncomfortable and I speak from experience and there have been times when I've spoken up and there's been times when I haven't and I'm kicking myself in the ass when I walk away or, 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 you know, a few minutes later. I had a, the house we lived in when we first moved to Tennessee, um, the people who rented it before us were, they were, you know, they were struggling with a drug addiction and they let the house go to shambles and it was, it was a hot mess for the uh, homeowner. Well, the homeowner ended up, uh, you know, fixing the house up, getting it cleaned up and it was, it was pretty bad. When we didn't know this until after we moved into the home and started renting it. And there were a lot of problems we had with it, long story short. But basically, I was talking to another mom at school about it. And she she, she leaned into me and goes, yeah, it was a Black family who was renting it. And I stepped back and I was like taken aback by what she said because I was like, um, I said, it wasn't. Why does that I matter? literally <laughs> looked at her and I was like, it, it wasn't because they were black. It's because they were struggling with a drug addiction. And you could tell instantly she got uncomfortable. And I was, there's that and homophobia. Racism and homophobia are the two things that I have stopped. And it's taken a lot of courage, a lot of, of co- courageous conversations and time for me to get to that point of being able to call that shit out in the moment. And it's been very hard. So I, I understand those that are like having those moments. But I called her out because I was like, "Are you fucking kidding me? I live in Appalachia. Appala- I live in the Appalachian Mountains. There are like thirty thousand addic- drug addicted white people to every one drug addicted black person." So I was like, "Ma'am, can you please just look around you right now? That is just stupid." I was like, "Yeah, they that." It, Yeah. So I challenge listeners: if that happens, if you are safe, it is a safe environment for you and yourself. Speak up, say something, make them feel uncomfortable, because it's not okay. Yeah. So, anyways, go, Loa. Yeah. The uncomfortable
3: conversations, when they happen, you may lose friends. You may lose, you know, uh, your (laughs) notoriety, or like, I don't know. You may lose your reputation. I think that's a better cost than the bloodshed. Absolutely. So weigh it like that in your mind whenever you come into a situation like that. Obviously, make sure it's a safe situation for you to speak your truth. But like, even if you know this is going to end poorly, like, I'm not coming out of this without, you know, this friend being angry with me or this uncle not talking to me for six weeks. I think it was more... I think it was well worth it as opposed to another body from one of, you know...
1: And I, I speak from experience. I actually lost a friend who was like one of my, was my best friend at the moment whenever I was like just starting like deconstruction and decolonizing and really understanding. And it was very shortly after George Floyd had died and some, some cop had shot, um, a black man who was drunk and like running away like from custody. And he shot and killed the black man and then he lost his job. And she was all up in arms about this man losing his job. And I was like, a man lost his life. Like, can we talk about that? (laughs) And and I challenged her and I had these conversations with her and I was not scared to speak my mind, but I lost my friendship with her. And there was multiple reasons with it, but she actually, one of the texts she sent me was, you stand for equality and I don't. I'm not fucking kidding. You're showing your true character, honey. Oh, (laughs) She legit sent me that text and I was like, all right, peace out and I walked away. Like I was like there's no no getting through to you wow. and I said what I've said, but I walked away from that relationship and I don't I I don't look back on it because honestly those relationships cause you a lot of stress and you oh, need to yeah. say your peace and if they're not willing to listen and understand, it's might not be a relationship that you want to be in or it's at least a relationship you need to set some strong boundaries. Because wow. Yeah. yeah.
3: Okay, enough about us. (laughs) Kyle, uh, we've kept you a while. Is there anything else you want to add before we close out?
2: Just just one more thought. And this is just to give the listeners something to think about. And I'm not casting judgment, just something to think about. The word minority, immigrant, migrant, words like that, are there words that I believe were strategically designed to keep a people from being humanized, and every time I I talk about this, the only people who object to these words are people who've never been called these words, and so think about that. If you find yourself objectable to someone like me saying, we should get rid of the word minority, no one's a minority. We're human beings. No one's a no one's a no one's an immigrant. We're human beings. No one's a migrant. We're, we're not the things you dehumanize groups of people when you label these people. Well, that's just some 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 old immigrant. No, this is a human being. So, if those words trouble you, if you get all oh, man, you know when someone says, you know, don't 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 use these words or, or these words should go away. We shouldn't call people illegal. What do you want us to call them? They're here illegally. There's no such. How can a human being be illegal? You know,
1: we 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 are here illegally. We took we took the land from the Native Americans, so like we're illegal immigrants. So if if we really want to get technical, <laughs> exactly.
2: Which of course I'll oh, know, no, no. Then you know, of course the stuttering starts, and the mm-hmm. you know, how dare you, kind of, and the, the di- they start diverting. Yeah. So if, if if those words, if the thought of those words going away trouble you. It's yourself why. Mm-hmm. It's yourself why. Mm-hmm. Why does it trouble you? Yeah. Why does it trouble you to get rid of words that dehumanize groups of people? Um, because it doesn't mean you have to open up your door to them and say, hey, come live in my house. It doesn't mean you have to say, hey, come take my job. It doesn't mean you have to say, hey, come take my possessions or Anything, it just means that we don't use these words to dehumanize groups of people because they are people first and foremost. Yes. So if the words trouble you, if you find yourself, again, getting enraged when someone suggests, like me, let's get rid of these words, ask yourself why. Why? Mm.
3: That's an excellent challenge. Thank you for giving our listeners something to think about. And thank you for being transparent with us. Kyle, at the end, we do a palate cleanser after a hard case because we have to sleep at night. (laughs) So,
1: Lacey, do you have a palate cleanser today? Yeah, actually, I do. I guess I'll make the announcement for this episode. Um, But really quick, on top of what Eric, I called you Eric again. Kyle. on top of, Eric's our editor, guys. So I don't know. I get these mixed up all the time. Sorry, Kyle. Sorry. Uh, on top of what Kyle said about like if this makes you uncomfortable, if this episode makes you uncomfortable, if what we've been talking about makes you uncomfortable, sit with it. Ask yourself why. Reach out to, you know, other um, people of color who are uh creators on TikTok or Instagram and we will tag some of our favorites in the show notes and you guys can go and follow them and learn and sit with it um one the first step is sit with your uncomfortableness and that's all you have to do sit with it don't speak valid speak on oh, your yeah. anger you're going to dig yourself into a, a hole okay just just sit with it okay anyways moving on palette cleanser i got I got accepted to my college, my local college today. Yes, she got accepted. So we're so excited for Lacey. I am yes. very excited. Congrats. I am going back for cardiovascular technology. Um, so it is wow. like I will do EKG, stress tests, things like that. I wanted to go back because my cult leader picked my degree and it was all like very much designed and picked by him. And I hated it, never used it, never actually even finished. And so I wanted to choose something of my own. And I wanted something that if A, we got canceled by the internet and this podcast, we can't (laughs) (laughs) And B, if something ever happened to my husband and he was out of work, that I could be a single mom and raise my family. And so I, p- I picked this one. So it'll probably take me three, four years to finish. It's a two-year degree, but I can't go full-time every semester. I got three kids and I got other stuff on my plate. So, but yeah, I start in January of 2024. So really excited. And I'm starting with a bang and I'm taking anatomy and physiology. Oh,
2: <laughs> Hell yeah. Nice. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah.
1: Nice. I love it. I, I'm well, A little great. bit of
2: encouragement to that end. My sister, who was just a couple years younger than me, uh, a couple of years ago, just, you know, did her master's Love it. and which was, you know, two years or, or three or four years before that had just, well, she did her, she did her, she, she finally finished her, you know, her um, bachelor's degree. And again, this is, she was probably, you know, pushing 40 at the time when she started that journey and she was a single mom, three kids, you know, that whole thing. And she got really stoked up after she got her degree, and then immediately said, "I'm going to go get my master and that wow. thing." And so, um, you can definitely do it. Yeah,
1: I'm. Yeah. I'm impressed. My 16 year old niece, when I told her I was going back, she was like, "You're going to college at your age?" It's was, I was like, "Shut your damn mouth, <laughs> George!" Oh my sure, god, shut it all the way, all the way down, all Stop. the way down,
2: all the way down. <laughs> all the
1: way down. I was like, "That is such a 16 year old thing to say," but. It gave me a laugh. Give me a laugh. Mm-hmm. Anyways, do you have a palate cleanser there, Lola? Uh, my
3: palate cleanser is that I'm getting back into yoga, and <gasps> it's been very good for my back. And you've been doing dance. Oh yeah. Well, I I always dance oh, all the time. But yeah, you've been I have an actual dance class though. So. Yeah, I've been doing some dance classes recently. Oh, so love it. I will not be. Demonstrating for anyone yeah. anytime soon.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> that's okay. We we won't ask you, even though I should probably get back into yoga, but I'm not going to add another thing on my plate. I've got too much shit going on anyways. It is, but yeah, guys, I hope you liked that episode and I hope you enjoyed our very first guest, uh, Kyle. It thank was you. such a pleasure thank to you. have you thank and thank you. you so much. Um, and surprise, we have another guest coming at you for next week. So it'll be a <laughs> Don't little tell surprise. Him I'm not, I'm Don't. not, but I'm very excited. We're, do, we're just going out of bank. We're doing interview after interview. And of course you will have a case within the episode as well. So come back, be surprised on who it is. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.
3: Also, heathens, if you're enjoying the show so far, please remember to subscribe on whatever platform you listen to us on and remember to bring your sacrifice to the blood ritual. Just kidding. A review will suffice. Deadly Faith is brought to you by Choircast Network. It's produced by Lacey Bean and Lola Robbins and audio engineered by Eric Cowell. Thanks for listening.